We also want to just thank you as a church, not only just for inviting us to come, but also, you know, uh, Heritage Baptist Church is actually financially supported, Diana and me, for I don't even know how many years, 40 years probably? I mean, a long time. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And we just know that the Lord is blessing you as a church. And it's been a, it's been a delight for us to get to know some folks. Last night, there was a group over at Chip and Cindy's house, and they hosted everyone so beautifully. And I just want to thank you for uh, the privilege of, for Diane and I to come. Um, we have been missionaries for almost 50 years. In January, it'll be 50 years. Um, we've served in various leadership roles in over 50 countries of the world. And um, there was a time that we wanted to have something from every country where we served in, in our home. But you know, over time, a house began to look a lot more like a museum. <laughs> but one of the things that we always enjoyed, my wife particularly, but I too, is the pottery that you find in various countries. And so we started sort of collecting a group of bowls. And um, we, um, uh, we really enjoyed the dichotomy and the difference between countries and the way the patterns were made and so forth. And um, this first bowl right here actually was given to us uh, in China. It's a Chinese bowl. And it has uh, all of the bowls that I'm going to share with you today had a very significant uh, a, a significance for us personally. This was given to us on November the 11th, 2001. Now you all know what happened on September 11, that same year, just two months before, on the exact same day. It also happens to be my birthday. <laughs> now nobody in the group that we were with knew that it was my birthday. But they gave us this beautiful bowl, and it's actually, if you come to our kitchen, it's hanging on the wall there. And um, I was going to bring it, but it's a bit fragile, so we didn't bring it actually here to show in front of you. So I just took a picture of it. While we were there, my cell phone rang. And the reason that bowl is so significant to us today is that only a, 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 our team leader in Bosnia, in the city of Zanitsa, Bosnia, it's the largest Muslim town in all of Bosnia, gave us, called me. And he says, Michael, I just got a call from the American embassy, the security officer, and he told us that there is an Al-Qaeda group that have de decided to kill us today. Now, that was two months to the day after 9-11. Right? This was in November the 11th, and, just this, and you know what happened on September the 11th uh, in New York and Washington and, and even in Pennsylvania. What a day. I, we, we were in Hungary that day, so I remember what that day specifically. And I imagine most of us in this day will remember that day, but also most of you in this room will remember what happened right here in your own city back in 1995. I went through, Chip took, uh, and I went through that uh, memorial in that national monument yesterday. Wow. What a, what a sobering thought that happened right here in your own city and in your own people. And probably some of you are in this room who maybe knew some of the people that were in that building that day. But on this day, on November the 11th, um, my team leader, his name is Art Aragon, and he called and he says, Michael, there, the American embassy told us that there is an Al-Qaeda training camp 
just five miles away, and they're made up of Afghan Mojahideen and, and jihadists from Algiers, and they are training for another attack. And they decided to kill the only American representatives in their area, which was our church planning team. And I said, Art, get out of town. You need to go. They have two children in the family. And then there were other families there. And I said, you need to leave. And while he was talking, he says, they're surrounding us. And I said, who's surrounding you? American troops, NATO troops and Turkish troops began to surround their houses. And I said, don't depend on that. Your, your house is on a hill. All it takes is one rocket grenade, uh, uh, rocket grenade to blow up your house. I said, get out of town. And he said, no, we didn't come here to run at the first sign of trouble. And I said, Art, you have two children at home. Are you willing to risk those kids? I'm not. Go. And I required them to leave. I was their regional leader, so I, I, I had some authority in that. And I found out very quickly how much authority I didn't have, too, <laughs> when they didn't want to go. I appreciated their dedication, but it wasn't a wise thing to do. And so they did leave. And all the other, the whole entire team left for about a week is all, and then they came back and finished their church planting. But there was something that happened that day. The American and Turkish troops attacked that training camp, and they arrested 65 jihadists and took them to Guantanamo Bay. And Time Magazine, back in that time, wrote about this event. So we, we were actually, our little church planting team was in Time Magazine. Uh, another bowl that was significant for us, this one comes from Turkey. And, you know, Turkey is the, the Turks are the largest unreached people of the world. 65 million Turks and about 20,000, at the most, 20,000 believers. And I tell you, when I heard that your church was working in Samsung, I just said, praise God, you guys are actually having a ministry among the largest unreached people of the whole world. I praise God for you. That's a dedication. And, and I, in the Sunday school, I asked how many people had actually been to Samsung, and there was quite a few hands that went up. And I, we just praise God for the work that's going on in Turkey to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we use this bowl, and by the way, if you come to our house, you're probably going to get your mashed potatoes in that, in that bowl. <laughs> but when we do, we're reminded, pray for Turkey. And the third bowl that I find is in our house that was very significant is this one came from Uzbekistan. And um, because we, have, we were involved in the Central Asian republics, uh, in the Muslim uh, communities, uh, Muslim peoples of Central Asia for a lot of years, um, we, we received this beautiful bowl. And I, aren't they different? And I love the patterns and so forth. Why is this significant? We had 21 missionaries in serving in Uzbekistan, and one day they were all kicked out. And they were the last of several hundred missionaries to be kicked out of Uzbekistan. And you know, when the devil closes a door, God opens a crack in a window. And we crawled back through that crack, and we actually, just a few months later, had missionaries back in Uzbekistan working secretly. Some of you heard in Sunday school, I mean, Diane and I were among the, the earliest missionaries to live secretly in a communist country back in the time of Leonid Brezhnev, if you remember. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And um, so we learned how to live in a, secret, uh, in a secret way. And so missionaries were able to go back into Uzbekistan 
And Diane and I, one day, we were, we were there visiting some of our missionaries. And again, my cell phone calls. Sometimes I want to turn that thing off. But, um, and this time, it was our Dutch director. We have, uh, we're an international mission. We're called People International. And we have missionaries in various places. And Chip has been on our, our U.S. board. And uh, I think you have another couple from this church that's involved in the board. In fact, board chair. Yeah, we're, you, see, you're, you guys are so invested in us. And um, anyway, my phone, phone call rang, and uh, it was uh, Jacob, our director in the Netherlands, in, 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 in Holland. And he said, our brother Peter has just been kidnapped in Afghanistan. What do we do? And we were in Uzbekistan. I said, well, first of all, we're getting on the first plane out of here, and I'll be in your office tomorrow if we possibly can. And the second thing I did, I said, we're going to call Bob. Who's Bob? You see, we have been involved with an organization called Crisis Consulting International. And I called Bob. You know who Bob is? He is the U.S. leading negotiator for missionaries who've been kidnapped. And he was a friend of mine. I said, Bob, we're in trouble he said, okay, tell me about it. And I said, well, I don't know a whole lot. I just know that Peter has been kidnapped. We don't know by whom. And he just, it just happened today. And I really need your help right now. And so within 24 hours or 36 hours, we were together in the Netherlands for the next 39 days working to get Peter released from a warlord in Afghanistan. This white hair came from that. I can tell you, a lot of it anyway. We were working 24 hours a day with a whole group of 21 of us that came in various skills and sets uh, to work together. And you know what? 39 days later, Peter walked out alive and free. And we praise God for that. That bowl means a lot to me. You know, Jesus, he encountered some bowls too. We know that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he encountered three bowls. Now, sorry, I'm a European in a lot of ways, so this is number one, and this is two, and this is three. Forgive me if I'm, my culture keeps coming out. I mean, I'm a, I grew up in North Carolina. I'm a Southerner, but lived in Europe for so many years that uh, we be, we do things in, in the European way a lot of times. Jesus encountered three bowls on the night before he was crucified. And each one of those bowls was very significant. And I would just like for us to look at those together. The first bowl is found in John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. And I need to click the clicker. There you go. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper. Now, this is the night before he was, he was crucified. Got up from supper and laid aside his garment, and taking up a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water uh, in a bowl and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, if you've been to this church for a while or in other churches, you know what happened that night. Peter said, oh, you don't wash my feet. Why was, that, why was this so shocking? These disciples had been following Jesus for over three years. They had been with him. They saw his miracles. 
They saw his heart of compassion for the people and the power and the glory at the time of transfiguration. But they had never seen anything like this. You know what it means to, in that culture to wash a person's feet? Now, people uh, wore sandals, and, they, and the place was dirty. There's no asphalt there, and, there's, and it's just dirty. And when you walk around and you come into someone's home or into a room, what's the first thing you do? You take your shoes off. Did you know that's still the culture? From Austria, in Austria, all the way over to Japan, you go into somebody's home, you, the first thing you do is take your shoes off. That's just what you do. And uh, when you go to church, you take your shoes off. If this, was a, if this church was over in Eastern Europe, there'd be all kinds of shoes out there. And, and, and they're all piled together. And then you're, after church, you're all trying to find your shoes, you know. Their feet were really dirty. And when they came into a home, usually it was a slave that washed the people's feet so you don't take all that dirt into their home. So in Eastern Europe and in the Muslim world, if you go, if you're go, some of you are going to Turkey. I met uh, David and, um, yeah, thank you, <laughs> last night. They're going to Turkey soon. So when you go into somebody's home, the first thing you do is take your shoes off. Why? Out of respect for the home. Your shoes have got dirt on them. And so you take your shoes off, and you're sitting in your stocking feet. And make sure you don't have any holes in your socks, okay? Um, and, uh, well, it doesn't matter that much. But at the same time, that's what was happening here. Jesus was doing the job of a slave. He is the creator of the world. He is the one who changed water to wine. He is the one who just in uh, 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 24 hours or less, he was going to be crucified on the cross, and three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. He, was, he is the one who is the master. He has been the teacher, and they called him rabbi and rabboni even. They gave him titles of praise because of who he was. Now he is down washing their filthy feet. Now, I don't know why the owner of the upper room where they were meeting didn't provide someone to wash their feet. Maybe he did, but that guy was having his own Passover dinner at his own house, and his slave was doing it at their house. Maybe that was the case. I don't know. But we do know that nobody washed the disciples' feet, and they were all very dirty. Now, you lay, you, when you go to dinner, um, we've done this many times, you go to dinner in a Muslim's home, you, the table is about that high, sitting on the floor, and you, you eat sitting on the floor. And um, believe me, at my age, with my knees, trying to get down on the floor is not easy, but I'll tell you, getting up's a lot worse. <laughs> it ain't pretty, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but we've had to do that to be identified with their culture. So we've eaten on the floor many, I mean, many, many, many times. I wouldn't even know how many times. Um, and that's the way you do it in a, in, a, in, a, in a Muslim culture of Central Asia. Now, not in the Middle East. It's a little different there. They're a little bit more sophisticated. But when you go into Afghanistan and you are in someone's home, that's what you do. You go into Tur Turkmenistan, I mean, uh, Tajikistan or in Kyrgyzstan, you just, that's what you do. You eat on the floor. And so you get down and you have to practice that. I when we have short-term teams, I tell them, you need to practice this <laughs> because you've never done this before to get down on the floor and have your dinner and then get up again. And, um, and, but that's the way they do it. Well, in Jesus' day, that's, that's what it was. And they, Jesus was a servant. 
He modeled what servanthood was all about when he did that. Um, now, I can imagine that all of us here, I mean, look at your feet. Are they pretty clean? I imagine they, most of us can't claim with clean feet and clean socks and pretty decent shoes as well because we're coming to church. But in those days, everything was dirty around them. And it's still that way when you go, uh, if you go to some of the places of the Middle East, your, your shoes are filthy. That's why you take them off when you go in. Every Christian needs to learn what Jesus did. I'm not talking about washing our, each other's feet, but I am talking about being a servant to one another. You see, a, an essential part of being a Christian is being a servant for other people. And when you're, when you're focused on that, it, it's amazing what God does. Now, um, after I retired in 2016 as the international director of our mission, I turned 70 then, so you can sort of figure out how old I am. But um, we, um, <clears throat> Diane and I retired for three months, and we said, enough of this. Let's get back to work. And so what we, the Lord led us to a ministry working with Muslim refugees on a Greek island called Lesvos. And we, we began to organize uh, short-term teams. And we've taken, I don't know, I think about 16 or 18 teams to work in a refugee camp. Over a million refugees from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, uh, Iran came to this camp. And also some from Africa, from Somalia and Sudan, North and South Sudan and other countries. And, and, and the camp was made for 2,500 people, and we had sometimes up to 21,000 people in a camp made for 2,500. So we had, it was a mess. And so we brought short-term teams. We brought over 300 people with us over the next several years since 2017. And, and, and we, we shared the gospel with many of these Muslim people. And we also did a lot of physical work. One week, we shoveled five dump truck loads of gravel to keep people, these Muslims, off. Uh, they, they lived in tents, and we got them up off the ground, and it's in a valley, so all the dirt and all the garbage up here from other refugees didn't come down into their tents down here. And so we, we, we did all kinds of physical things. One day, one of the religious Christian leaders, actually he was the pastor of our church in South Carolina, where we now live. His name is Robbie. And Robbie came to me and he says, Michael, why don't we go clean the, forgive this word, toilets, because that's what it's called in their, their culture, or the bathrooms, in the, in, the, in the new arrivals tent. And I went, you got to be out of your mind. Now, what is that? Let me describe it to you. When new refugees came across the first thing the police did is capture them and bring them to the new arrivals tent. Now, that was a tent. It was like a circus tent, not quite that big. I would, I would guess if you divide this room in half, it would be about that size. And there were 500 refugees in that laying and sleeping on the floor. Now, there was, there's not enough room for them to always lay down on their back. They had to lay on their side, and they're this close to people they didn't even know. And they're laying on their sides at night trying to sleep. 500 people there, and there were eight toilets for 500 people. And Robbie says, Michael, let's go clean those toilets. They're terrible. 
And I went, you are out of your mind if you think we're going to go there. And he said, what other way can we serve these people? Okay, he hit a, heart, he hit a point there in my heart. <laughs> so the two of us, and then there was one other younger guy on the team. He says, hey, I heard you all going to do a project. And I said, yeah, come with us. It'll change your life. <laughs> so this young guy and Robbie and I, we got shovels and brooms and all that, and we went to clean the toilets. This is not the toilets. It was 10 times that. There were piles of feces and bottles and paper and all with no running water for 500 people in eight toilets. It was up to our knees. And we got two dumpsters and we started shoveling all of that filth into those dumpsters. Now, the the new arrivals tent is locked until the United Nations can process these people, vet them as we say it over here. Um, They're in that tent and sometimes they're there for a month before they can get processed. And they are having to use filthy, absolute, you cannot imagine the smell and the look of them. And we filled two entire dumpsters with that. And you know what happened? The men came to us and said, why are you doing this? And we said, well, I'll tell you, there's nothing in me naturally that would do this. But God has put the love of Christ in our hearts. And we're here to try to make your life better. And they said, well, what nationality are you? I said, we're Americans. You mean you come from the country that we all want to go to and you're cleaning our toilets and you're doing this? No Muslim man would ever do that. And we said, hey, we're so sorry that you have to live in this filth, that there's no running water. It doesn't flush anymore. It doesn't go anywhere. It just piles up in horrible, horrible conditions. But you know what happened? Then these men came over and said, why did you do that? You said something about the love of Jesus? What? Tell me about that. And we all sat down with a whole group of men And we shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what happened that entire week? Somehow the word got out. And when I would walk through the the, the camp, with, at that time there were about uh, 12,000 refugees in the camp, people would say, those are the guys who cleaned the toilets. And people would come up to me and whisper, because it's illegal for a Muslim to do this, can you get me a Bible? Can you tell me about Jesus? We had more opportunities to share the gospel that week than ever. And I began to praise God for Robbie who made me do the thing that my heart was not willing to do. You know what? How do we serve one another? Are you willing to give your time and energy and your dignity to serve one another? I don't expect you to go out and cleaning that kind of a mess up because it doesn't even exist in this country, I don't think. But I'll tell you, every one of us needs the qualities that Jesus modeled when he got up and washed the disciples' feet. First of all, he demonstrated humility. Here you have the the ruler of all creation washing the feet of these men. You talk about humility. 
So much so that they couldn't understand that. Second of all, being a servant requires sacrifice. You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your energy. You, you, you sacrifice your, even, even your own dignity. Thirdly, being a servant means to be Christ-like. Um, we need to be more Christ-like in our servitude. I was talking with a young man. I've been sort of meeting with him. He's a 25-year-old fellow who really wants to follow Christ. And, and he kept telling me, he says, I'm just praying that God would give me more grace and he would give me more knowledge and he would give me more, more of this and more of himself. And I said, Michael, you already got all that. <laughs> you need to do something else. You need to start giving out to other people. I said, how are you serving other people? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, what about homeless people? Have you ever thought about the homeless people in our town? We live just outside of Columbia, South Carolina, and there are homeless people there on the street. He decided that, I said, why don't you go and meet one of those homeless people and become friends with them? Find out, why are you on the street? And so he did. A week or so later, I met with him, and I said, how did it go? He said, yeah, I met this 23-year-old guy who was sleeping on the sidewalk in front of a store at night, and I went and slept with, next to him. And we talked half the night about the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, Michael, that's fantastic. You identified with someone who has had a very difficult life. And you're laying there next to him, and he said he shared his blanket. He gave me a blanket. And, and we laid there on the sidewalk in front of the store in downtown Columbia. And he got to share Jesus with this man. And he began to ask all kinds of questions. And I said, now, when are you going to meet him again? <laughs> he said, yeah, we're going to do that. Today, you know where this 25-year-old fellow Michael is? He's in the country of Chad in North, in North Central Africa today at a hospital helping out. Well, he... Things happen when we start to learn how to be a servant. Every one of us in this room needs to be able to identify how are you a servant? What does God put in your heart to do? If you're not serving other people, if you're not serving other people, you cannot grow but to so far in your own Christian life because servanthood is an essential part of the Christian life. And I want to ask you this. This should be your topic over, over today's lunch. You sit down with your family and ask them, what can we do to make a difference through servanthood? Show your humility. It's a sacrifice. Is there something you can give away? And not something that you're going to give away anyway. I mean, is there something that has great value that you can give to other people? people that don't have that. There are poor people in, in Oklahoma City, I would imagine. And you can be a servant to them. And God will open the door for you to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're going to ask you, why are you doing this? Oh, because Jesus put the love of other people in your heart. And then you get to share why Jesus is so important to you. Let's do that. Can we do that? Can we agree to do that? I'm asking. Anybody answer? Anybody out there? Or can we agree to do that? Talk about it over lunch today and to figure out a way that you and your family, fathers, you take the lead with your children, and they will watch what you do. And I'll tell you what, 
fathers, they will respect you a whole lot more when you do that. When you show humility, did you know the world doesn't know what to do with a humble man? They just don't know what to do with a man who has a humble heart and is willing to sacrifice his own dignity or his own money or his own possessions or his own time for the benefit of other people. The second bowl that Jesus met, ran into that, that night is the bowl of betrayal. Let's look at this passage. In the same chapter, John 13, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Hmm. The disciples began to look at one another and at, the, uh, and, and at a loss to know which one he was speaking. And there was a one person who was reclining on Jesus' bosom. Now, what is, because you are sitting down here and you're leaning over against the other person, it happens like that. And we know that this person happened to be the, the Apostle John because he always referred to him that way. And, and Simon Peter, verse 24, uh, have I gotten that far? Yeah. Uh, then Simon Peter uh, uh, gestured to him and said, tell, me, tell us who it is. Who are you speaking about? And he leaned back and thus on Jesus' bosom and he said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel in the bowl and give it to him. So that he had dipped, when he dipped the bowl, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Look at this verse. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, you go do whatever you're going to do quickly. The second bowl. Oh, did I not click? Oh, I am so sorry. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, after the, the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, go do what you're going to do quickly. Judas was a betrayer. Are there any betrayers in this room? Have any of us? You know, to be betrayed is probably the most painful experience that we can have as a human being. When someone we love betrays us. I wouldn't be surprised if there are people in this room who've been betrayed by a husband or a wife. Or you've had your children who've been betrayed by a mom or a dad. It hurts. It's a terrible, terrible thing. I think Jesus' heart was about to break at that point. You know, it's interesting, though. What did Jesus do? He took a piece of bread, and he dips it into the wine, and he gives it to Judas. Does that sound familiar to you? That's called what? The Lord's Supper. Jesus gave Judas his own private Lord's Supper. Wow. What love that expresses to the very person that Jesus knew was going to turn him over to the authorities. We served in a communist country for seven years. And at the end of those seven years, we were invited to leave by the communist authorities, if you know what I mean. You know what happened? 
we were working with six small churches to help them establish a new church in, across the river from them, just five miles away in the city of Varajdin, where there was not a single believer. And these six Baptist churches came together. They were all uh, um, country churches. They were very small churches, but they came together, pulled together, hired a church planter to go to Varajdin to start a church. Now, it was a communist country. In every major church, there would be an informant to the secret police. And in that church, in the town of Machkovitz, I know the brother who did this. He turned us into the police, to the secret police. And it was on Christmas Day in 1980 that the police came to our home. Now, we knew that the police knew a lot about us. We found a microphone in our living room. I was followed constantly. There was, um, there, there were, uh, our telephones were tapped. In fact, one time I was talking to someone and a third voice comes on and he says, would you speak more slowly? He couldn't, he couldn't follow us. <laughs> and we didn't know whether to laugh or cry because we knew they were listening in. They're writing down everything we talked about. I mean, there were so few foreigners even. I think there were like 25 or 30 foreigners of all nationalities, in, in mostly in embassies. And we were not a part of any of that. And, and, and we were involved with trying to bring a group of churches together that they would plant a church in the next town. And this man is, I, I, I started to mention his name, but I won't. I knew who he was. I'd helped his son get out of drugs. Um, and um, he turned us into the police. On Christmas Day, 1980, and they came every day for two months to our home, interrogating us. It was a tough time. We went through it. And you know what John, uh, the, uh, Matthew's gospel says? In Matthew chapter 10, I think it's verse 18 or 20, I forget the exact verse. It says, do not be concerned when you stand before authorities because the Spirit of God will give you the exact words to say. And we saw that every day. For two months, but we knew our ministry was done. And they invited us to leave the country, the country that we loved. So we had to move to Austria and suffer in Vienna, Austria for the Lord Jesus. But we started a Bible college there for Serbo, in Serbo Croatian language, in the language of Yugoslavia, and then later a, um, uh, a seminary in Bulgaria and Bulgarian language and so forth. So education, training people for the ministry became a big part of our of our uh, uh, ministry. But I tell you, being betrayed by people that you love is the most hurtful thing I can ever imagine. And I thought our whole ministry was gone. And the people we loved, we would not be able to continue our ministry. But you know, God opened the door for that. And we were able to go every two weeks, go back into Yugoslavia. Because we left before they put that stamp in your passport, you know. We left just the day before they were going to kick us out officially so that that wouldn't happen. If you've been betrayed, I want you to think and pray about this forgiveness. I learned there's two kinds of forgiveness. And the two kinds are this. One is we had to forgive that man once and for all. And once it was a forgiveness that once I forgave him, and it took me a little bit of time to get there, I have to admit, we wrestled with that. But I said, Lord, I will not allow a root of bitterness to be in my heart. I forgive 
Mr. So-and-so, my brother, for what he did. And then, though, I preached in that church every month. And every time I preached in that church, I had to forgive him again and again and again. There's a process in forgiveness. There's a once and for all foundation. But then you have to forgive them over and over and over again. And some of you ladies sitting here and some of you men know what I'm talking about. Because you've had to do that with your spouse. Or you have a wayward son who's gone off. And you stay faithful to that boy or that girl. Hardest things for a man or a woman to do, isn't it? And yet that's what Jesus did. And when I read that he gave this bread and put it into that bowl of wine and gave it to Judas, oh my goodness. The love of Christ. It's greater than all of our pain. The third bowl that Jesus encountered is found in Matthew chapter 27. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus stood before Pilate. Now, you know who Pilate was. Pilate was the local governor of Judea. And Matthew 27 says, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus? He was the governor. Do you remember? You know this story. It was the next morning. And Pilate stands up before the people, what should I do with Jesus? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting. All the more saying, crucify him and crucify him. And when Pilate saw that, uh, that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was about to start, he took water in a basin or a bowl and he washed his hands in front of them and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And look at that last verse. And they said, the, his blood shall be on us and our children. Wow. Third bowl. The third bowl is the bowl of, of reneging our responsibility. You see, Pilate was responsible as the governor to release Jesus but he refused to do it because of the crowd. We have responsibilities as Christians to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to disciple people and to establish churches all around the world. We have that responsibility, but you know what? Christians all over the world and all over the United States run away from that responsibility. And they give us excuses. I've heard people say, I'm not called, or I'm too old, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know how to do that, or I'm, I, I've got my family, I've got my work, I've got this. They will always make excuses to not get involved in what our responsibilities are. And as fathers, I've talked with men, well, I'm busy, I don't have time to go spend with my teenage son. I don't have, you know, we make excuses for not doing what God has called us to do. And you know what? This is the easiest of the three bowls for us to eat from. <laughs> the hardest is to eat from the bowl of servanthood or to eat from the bowl of forgiveness and betrayal. Of be of betrayal. That's one of the hardest ones. But this bowl is the easiest one where we renege our responsibilities that God has put upon us as a church and as a people. 
and that, that we are not involved in the service of the church or in the ministry of God's word. I was sharing about our ministry in the Greek, in the refugee camps at our church, and there was a couple that I'd never met before. They were, they were just visiting, and their names were Tim and Sandy. And I talked about how we were bringing teams and working with these refugees, and, and we had the wonderful gospel of, uh, opportunity of sharing the gospel, and some of them came to know Christ. And we found out actually later that many of the refugees, these are Muslims, they went on to other countries and became believers and are actively involved in starting churches in their own language, in Arabic and Farsi and Dari and other, other languages. And, and so we've asked some of those, when did your spiritual journey begin? And they said, ha, huh, back there in that camp, on that island in Greece, when a, a Christian showed love to us, it shocked us. All our lives we were taught that Christians hate us. The Crusades, they came and they destroyed us. They fought with us. And here in this camp, in this miserable, terrible circumstances of this refugee camp, Christians that we recruited and led these teams served them. And it was the beginning of their journey toward Christ. It took them a while. Muslims don't accept Christ too quickly. Well, let's get involved. Gives, get involved in a way that, uh, like James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and, to, and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Do you do something for your community? Our church did something really interesting. There were two guys in our church they started what they call the second Saturday. And we thought, that's interesting, second Saturday. What they realized was that there were a group, there were some widows in our church. And they realized their houses are not in the best shape. And so they got to, they just told the church, men, anybody here know how to, which end of a hammer to pick up? You know, anybody know how to rake leaves or cut tree, uh, trim trees and do that? We're forming the second Saturday team, and we're going to go to the homes of our widows, and we're going to take care of those houses for them. We're going to change the filters on their air conditioner. We're going to do all kinds of things for their houses. And so you know what happened? Sixty-five people came together on second Saturday and went over to this widow's house. There were too many people. So you know what these two guys said? I bet there are other people in this community around this lady's house. We'll go around door to door and ask, do you have any needs that we can help you with in your house? And they began to have minister to the community. And they do it every second Saturday of the month. What a ministry to widows. And they took care of their houses. They didn't, I mean, can you think of anything better than that? Fulfilling what? James wrote right here in the passage of chapter 1, verse 27. A lot of good things can come out of this. Which bowl are you going to be eating from today? The bowl of servanthood? The bowl of betrayal? Or the bowl of reneging on your own responsibilities? You know, it's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given us the word of God 
We don't have to guess at what to do. You've told us what to do. You've told us how to be a servant. You've told us what to do when we've been betrayed. And God, if there is a betrayer in this room too, I pray you touch that man's or that woman's heart right now. And that they realize that there is forgiveness. When you are the betrayer, there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. His gospel is greater than all my sin. Praise God for that. And Lord, if we are not living up to our responsibilities of serving the people, of reaching people for Christ's sake, I pray, Lord, that you would put on our hearts today, even as we sit around our dinner table today, that you'd give, that, give us that conviction. I pray for fathers to take the lead in this for their family and say, what can we do as a family to serve the hurting or to serve the people in need, but also to serve each other in this church, that we would be a servant to all? Give us that humble heart. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, just as we were reading earlier this morning. And we give praise and glory to your name. Amen.